Father, you've given us your word that we might be students of it. That we might learn from it. So help this text to hit our heads, our hearts, and our hands. May it hit our heads that we might worship you with our minds. May it hit our hearts that we might be moved emotionally. Don't let us be emotionless after being exposed to this text. Come hard after our affections. Put us in awe. May this text hit our hands. That we put into practice what you've commanded of us. That we are ready to act as a result of being exposed to this passage. We have no interest. No interest, Lord, in just hitting the head. It must also hit the heart. For theology leads to doxology. What we know to be true about you leads to our worship of you. Father, we also have no interest in just hitting the head but not touching the hands. Belief affects behavior. So help our behavior to be modified by this exposition. We've been granted a great privilege to open your word in a public place. May we be mindful of our brothers and sisters around the world who do not have this privilege. They meet in some dark corner, but meet they must because this is the day your people gather. This is the day your people worship. This is the day your people need to be exposed to your preached word. Help me to deal faithfully with the text. To always say what the text says. To never neglect the hard truths in the text. Father, help me to teach my people to love your word. Honor your word. And crave your word. Do this among us for the praise of your glory. Amen. 22 Sundays in the book of 2 Samuel. And it's all coming to an end today. It's been a glorious journey. By God's grace, he has used the book to strengthen the faith of his people. Let's end this series on the right note. Let's say goodbye to King David and hello to King Jesus. King David was meant to fade away and point us to another. Goodbye, King David. Hello, King Jesus. I'll show you throughout the text how David fades into oblivion and how Christ moves into preeminence. There are two movements in the text. David's, King David's mighty men, chapter 23, verses 8 through 39. King David's mysterious sin, chapter 24, verses 1 through 25. King David's mighty men, King David's mysterious sin. We will start with King David's mighty men. And... Church, it is with enthusiasm I recount these stories of his mighty men. The, the men of Sparta pale in comparison to them. This chapter just makes me want to buy a sword and go to battle. It's a manly chapter. Some of you young boys are going to start growing facial hair just by hearing it preached. <laughs> the heroic exploits recorded for us are unlike any I have ever read. We are about to meet some decorated war heroes. You've heard of the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown? This is the soldiers' version of Cooperstown. It's the soldiers' Hall of Fame. We have the military equivalent of Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, and Jose Canseco. I'm joking about that last one. He's not worthy of, worthy of the hall. I'll never forget as a child watching him go for a high fly ball in the outfield and it hitting him in the head and bouncing over the wall for a home run. What a, what a stooge. 
no guys like that in our chapter. They don't have embarrassing moments, only inspiring moments, heroic moments. Let's start with the Mount Rushmore of Mighty Men, a group known as the Three. The Three. This is David's SEAL Team Six, his Delta Force, verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshua Boshabeth, a Tacomanite, he was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he had killed at one time. Joshua Boshabeth, let's just call him JB. <laughs> Apparently, JB was defending a key position and enjoying favorable terrain, wielding his spear against the onslaught of 800 men. It took a massive dose of courage to face these overwhelming odds. This is a crazy human accomplishment. Some may discard this as some mythological event because of the scale, but this is no mythology. This is the Soldiers Hall of Fame. JB was chief, head of the three. If you kill 800 men by yourself, that would make you chief, wouldn't it? Verse 9. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahoi. Now let's stop here. Eliezer is the son of Dodo. So we have among the three, we have JB and Dodo's boy. Verse 10, he arose and struck down the Philip Philistines until his hand was weary. And his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Dodo's boy is remembered for what he did. On the field of hand-to-hand -hand combat with the Philistines, the sword froze to his hand, welded to his palm. I mean by that his blood coagulated around his hand and made it one with the sword. The hand was fused to the sword. By the time the reinforcements arrived, there was nothing left for them to do except strip the slain bodies and peel the sword away from J.B.'s blood-splattered hand. A cleanup operation. I have a metal bar behind my bottom teeth. I remember when the skin grew over the metal bar and my dental people in Knoxville had to pry the bar from the skin. Maybe that's what happened here. He held the sword in a vice-like grip for so long the skin grew over it. Verse 11. And next to him was Shammai, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. We've given nicknames to everyone in the three so far, so let's continue that. His name was Shammai, so let's shorten it to Sham. When we hear about his deeds, we just say, wow. So we've got JB, we have Dodo's boy, then we have Shamwow. I told my wife I was going to nickname this guy Shamwow. She said, those commercials are 12 years old. <laughs> no one is going to remember that. We have a church full of little babies. Anyone remember the Shamwow? Okay, all God's people raising their hand right there. Shamwow took his stand in the middle of a lentil field and single-handedly routed the Philistines. Why? Did he love lentils that much? I don't even know what a lentil is. Sounds green. His motive was twofold. First, in battle, the Philistines would de destroy the food source. This would devastate the opposing army. Shamwow knows Israel's food supplies are being threatened and he defends the field, guards the table, defends the pantry, puts a do not enter sign by the kitchen. 
Secondly, Shamwow is not motivated by his love of lentils, but by his love of the Lord. This is God's promised land, and it will be defended. Verses 8 through 12, we are introduced to the three. I'm calling it introducing the three, verses 8 through 12. Verses 13 through 17, it's a story about the three. Introducing the three, then a story about the three. That's how I think this is divided up. Verse 13. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. When a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephium, David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. Apparently, this, this cave was a rallying point for David's men. The Philistines cut the promised land in half. They took over the middle portion. In addition, and perhaps in a move to lure David out, the Philistines stationed an occupying force in his hometown, Bethlehem. Verse 15, And David said longingly, Oh, that someone, would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Now, I read that verse, and I'm immediately asking, was there no water in David's cave? There had to be water available, but David wanted the water from the well of Bethlehem. Oh, I remember how good that water was. I love that well. Why was he thirsty for that particular water? I think this is more than physical thirst. He had a longing for normality, for peace. He was living in a cave. He had a longing for home. Some of you know what that's like. Nobody makes sweet tea like my mama makes sweet tea. Some of you long for home. You're from Texas and you long for Texas brisket and some real Tex-Mex. Not that stuff they serve in Clarksville. Maybe you're from the Northeast or Colorado and you long for snow. You long for home. Maybe you're from Detroit and you long for crime <laughs> and polluted water systems. <laughs> Apparently, David thirsted out loud. He thirsted out loud. His personal secret service heard him. Your wish is our command. They demonstrate their love and loyalty to the king. They launch a water retrieval mission. Bethlehem was about 15 or 17 miles away. They go in the night, break through enemy lines. It was reckless. But they would have charged hell for their king. They didn't worry about stealth. The word breakthrough is a loud word. It speaks of a violent entry. We do not have record of David asking them to do this. They just overheard his thirst and were moved to act. They would do anything for their king. David was a leader. A type of leader you would follow without question. David could inspire devotion. And this story illustrates that. None of these men had PR agents. They're not trying to be remembered. They are not lobbying to be in the Soldiers Hall of Fame. They just love their king and would do anything for him. Verse 16. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he did not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. What a moving account. The hairs on the back of your neck stand up while reading it. Such loyalty, such honor. What a solemn, holy moment. To drink the water would cheapen and demean the brave deed. David could not use their precious gift to quench his thirst. By pouring it out, David is saying, 
I'm not worthy of your bravery. This act is far too precious, far too important just to be directed at me. I will pour it out as a libation before the Lord. This kind of love and devotion only belongs to Yahweh. He turns the spotlight from himself to the Lord, the only one who deserves it. And to commemorate this special, singular, unique event, he poured it out. No one died. He wasn't pouring one out for the homies. He was saying, only the Lord is worthy of such devotion. Now, we will never be called to the battlefield to fight in God's kingdom like these men were. So what's the point in all these heroic stories? What's the point in all these heroic stories? All these accounts of violence in the text are, are not meant to push you to start slinging your sword and murdering people. The point is to make you look forward to another king. A coming king. A better king. These accounts are supposed to help you say goodbye to King David. And hello to King Jesus. Jesus is better than David. Jesus is not a king for whom you have to retrieve water. He's a king who brings water. The water of life. You don't hand him water. He hands you water. Water that when you taste makes you never thirst again. Unlike David, Jesus isn't thirsty. He satisfies the thirsty. Unlike David, Jesus doesn't require his mighty men to fight for him. He fights for them. Unlike David, Jesus is a king who is worthy of your bravery. But hear me. You don't charge hell for him. He charged hell for you. Jesus, he, he didn't pour liquid out on the ground. He poured liquid out in a cup. Take, drink, this represents my blood. The three, now the 30. The narrator is going to introduce you to the 30. He will begin by talking about a duo, two people. We are moving from a trio to a duo. The narrator just mentions the names of the 30, but he wants to highlight two out of the 30. The two who led the 30. Verse 18. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the 30. And he wielded his sword against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. Abishai, we met him before in our study. He's not new to us. He's Joab's brother and David's nephew. He's a member of the 30 and held in high honor among the 30. He did not attain to the stature of the three. He, he, he's not to be mentioned in the same breath as the three. But he's highlighted among the 30. Chief of the 30, yet not among the three. Abishai killed 300 men by himself. He's a beast. We've got the nephew, that's who he is, the nephew, now for the second half of the duo, verse 20, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a, a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when the snow had fallen. This man struck down two aerials of Moab, I did a lot of research. We don't, we don't know who they are. But they must have been two scary dudes to be put in the same plane as someone who killed 300 people. We've got the nephew and then we've got Benaiah whom I call the lion killer. While it snowed, he stalked a lion to a pit. Benaiah came out. The lion didn't. He's the lion king. Who's the king of the jungle? Benaiah, verse 21. 
And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. If I go down, that's how I want to be remembered right there. <laughs> and he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Now, I like this. Benaiah, the lion killer, he only had a walking stick. Then he said to the big, tall, handsome Egyptian, I'm going to take that bat. I'm going to take that bat from you, and I'm going to beat you with it. And he did. That's how he made the Hall of Fame. He struck down a big, snowy lion, and he struck down a big, handsome Egyptian. Verse 22. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. He, was, he too was held in greatest respect among the 30. Uh, the, this prowess won him oversight over the king's bodyguard. Then in verses, notice verse 24 to the end of the chapter, we have the names of the 30, a plethora of unpronounceable names. <laughs> the, these men excelled in fighting and in fidelity to their king. In the list, there are several foreigners mentioned, which demonstrates David's ability to hold the allegiance of people from different backgrounds. David attracted men who were looking for true leadership. You'll notice in the list there are actually 37 men 37 men, not 30. The, the 30 was a title rather than an exact figure. The group was fluid as people died and were promoted and transferred. There was an ebb and flow in the group. But do you see what this passage is doing? Surrounding King David with warriors, which leads us to this truth. The ideal king is not surrounded by warriors but is a warrior. The ideal king is not surrounded by warriors, but he is a warrior. Both David and Jesus were born in Bethlehem, but their armies look different. Jesus is the only king who doesn't have just mighty men in his army. He has weak men, weak women, small children, the outcasts, the unwanted, David had men from some foreign nations. Jesus has men and women from all foreign nations. David was a regional king. Jesus is a global king. And this king doesn't need you to kill a lion for him. In fact, he is a lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. When you enter his army, your job is not to protect him. His job is to protect you. Church, Put all these heroic accounts within God's unfolding drama of redemption. Put all these heroic accounts within God's unfolding drama of redemption. Don't forget, all this happened because Yahweh brought victories for his kingdom. Two times in the text it says, The Lord gave these mighty men the victory. This is not really about the men. All of their accomplishments, even the hardest, were a result of the grace of God. It only takes one arrow, and they are gone. The wind shifting a second sooner, and they are dead. This was Yahweh winning battles through them in order to bring and keep Israel a holy and distinct nation so he could bring a Messiah through them. And by the way, don't be bragging about your accomplishments. Well, I got here because I worked hard. I could take you to poor, destitute villages around the world that have men that will work you into the ground. You are a cupcake compared to them. A, a, a soft, little, squishy cupcake. You are where you are by the grace of God. Now, let me take a little sidebar here. Since we're talking about brave soldiers in the text... Let me talk to some brave soldiers in our church. You can die for your country and still go to hell 
I appreciate your bravery in protecting our freedom. But just because you're willing to die for your country doesn't mean you're willing to die for Christ. The two are not the same. Military service does not take the place of Christ's righteousness. You must be born again. Now let's move on to this truth. David and company should remind you that no earthly king is worthy of your ultimate allegiance. David and company should remind you that no earthly king is worthy of your ultimate allegiance. Did you happen to notice the last name in the list of the 30? Uriah. Remember him? Bathsheba's husband. David murdered him to cover up his adulterous sin. All these men were always loyal to David. But he wasn't always loyal to them. You must follow a king who is worthy of your ultimate allegiance. And that's only a sinless king. You keep resting your hopes and dreams in people and you will forever, forever be devastated. The king's mighty men, King David's mighty men, now King David's mysterious sin. King David's mighty men, that was early on in the reign of David. King David's mysterious sin, that was much later in the reign of David. There, there's a big gap between these two narratives. Notice verse 2. So the king said to Joab, the commander of their arm, army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. What's happening here? David orders a national census. He wants the whole country counted from north to south, east to west. He gives the command to Joab, verse 3. And Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Joab sees this as a senseless census. It will be incredibly costly. The time implications to complete a task this large are astronomical. Joab resists the king. It's not unusual for Joab to think his ideas are better than the king's. Verse 4. But the king's word prevailed against Joab. And the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. The text goes on to walk out the path they took to complete the census. It was a large counterclockwise loop. Verse 8. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. And Israel... There were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. It took nearly 10 months to complete. Nine months and 10 days to be exact. 285 days total. 800,000 from Israel and 500,000 from Judah. These are rounded numbers, broad figures. When we give the population of the U.S., we give it broadly. Same here, broad, rounded numbers. They counted a fighting force of 1.3 million. So that means the total population with women and children had to have been close to 4 to 5 million. And there's mystery shrouding David's sin. Here's the first mystery. Why was it wrong to take a census? Verse 1 mentions that God's anger blazed against David for the census. Why? There's nothing sinful about ordering a national census. Most nations do it regularly. God is not anti-census. Uh, there had been a military census in the past, and, and that wasn't sin. In fact, God himself once initiated a census. There's an entire book called Numbers, when God commanded his people to be numbered. The census itself is not wrong. It's not a sin to count people. Any of you that work for the Census Bureau, you don't need to quit your job. Counting is morally neutral. The motive behind counting is not. 
There's mystery shrouding the sin and there's mystery shrouding the motive. Obviously, it was David's motive behind the counting that was sin. What's going on on the motive level? What, what was his motive? Well, it could be that he wanted to magnify his own accomplishments. He took pride in how strong he's made the army. When God commanded a census earlier on in the Bible, it was to show Israel's dependence on God, to show how few of them there were in comparison to Egypt. That's not the case here. It's the reverse. Even Joab pushed back, why are you delighting in these things? The sin is in the delight. When the numbers come back, David will sit on his throne and gloat. This is the proud confidence of his own strength. It's astonishing what pride and boastfulness can lead a man to do. I think part of David's motive is magnifying his own achievements. But also, he wants to be self-sufficient. He wants to, to see how he will be able to defend himself against his enemies. He wants to be sure he has the numbers. How about be sure you have the Lord? He's no longer trusting in the promises of God. That God would bring them into a land and protect them. He's no longer dependent on the strength of the Lord to protect his nation. He's dependent on the numbers. This is a lack of faith. It's possible David wanted to count the numbers because he's thinking of future military aggression. How many are eligible for the draft in the next couple of years? I want some new ground. Some ground beyond the promised land. Some ground beyond what God has promised. Maybe David is thinking about picking a fight. It's foolish ambition. Let me ask you a question. Do you, like David, look to numbers to bring you security? Do you, like David, look to numbers to bring you security? What army in your life are you really counting on? When do you feel strong and secure? It is not wrong to look at numbers in your bank account. But it can be. When you get your security from that number. When you think you're untouchable because of that number. Joab said, why do you delight in this? Friend, I ask you the same question. Why do you delight in the number of Instagram followers? TikTok likes and YouTube views. It's not wrong to count. But counting can do something to your soul that is destructive. Counting is morally neutral. The motive behind counting is not. Why aren't more church leaders fearful of this? I don't know. Churches begin to grow. They start drooling over their numbers. Counting heads has long been a snare to God's people. You ever wonder why we don't give you attendance numbers around here? What are you counting that translates to your security and success? Your house? Your stock portfolio? How your body looks. It's replacing trust with statistics. We love to count. One pastor pointed out that David repeated the same sin that happened, that opened the book of 1 Samuel. Back then, Israel wanted a king to replace God as their security and treasure. Now David wants an army to replace God as his security and treasure. Same sin at the beginning of 1 Samuel as the end of 2 Samuel. Failing to trust God. David sinned here because he delighted in the strength of his numbers. Not in the grace of God. God gave those victories. God gave him those men. How do you boast in a gift Neither age nor experience is a safeguard against pride. 
This is not just a young man's temptation or a young woman's temptation. David is on the throne rejoicing at the numbers, rejoicing at the prosperity. In Scripture, we are never commanded to rejoice in our prosperity. Ever. We are told to count it all joy, rejoice, when we face trials. A.W. Pink said, The fuller our cup of joy, the steadier the hand required to hold it. The fuller our cup of joy, the steadier the hand required to hold it. Scottish pastor Andrew Bonner said, uh, Bonner said, let us be as, notice this, let us be as watchful, this is what David did not do, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. By David counting, he's saying to God, I can't trust you. I need to take care of myself. David's sin is our sin, failing to trust God. All right, the sin, verses 1 through 9, the wrath, verses 10 through 16. Notice verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Verse 10 is wonderful. It's repentance. David is experiencing deep regret. He's smitten with remorse. He knew his true motives behind counting. David says the most freeing words you could ever articulate. I have sinned. At least seven times in the Bible, these words roll off the lips of David. I have done very foolishly. He's accepting responsibility for his sin, facing up to it, which leads us to this truth. When David repented of sin, God forgave him. This is the gospel. A sinner repents of his wretchedness, and God forgives out of his goodness. Non-Christians, don't fight repentance. Run to repentance. Christians, don't dread repentance. View repentance like a gift. The hardest words for you to say are the sweetest to the ears of God. I have sinned. Here's everything I did. Look, look at it. It's, it's sick. It's disgusting. I've hidden it for so long. But here it is, Lord. And all its stench and filth, there's my sin. I will no longer conceal it. Please forgive me of this. Despairingly, some of you think, can God still love me? After I got angry with my children. After I failed in this area again. Beloved, when you repent, he forgives. Verse 11. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, came, came to the prophet Gad David's seer. Now, notice, church, David repents without prophetic prodding. He repented before Gad arrived. The prophet arrives after David's confession, not before it. Now, Gad acted as sort of a, he acted as sort of a chaplain to the king. And God tells Gad, it's a bit of a tongue twister, God tells Gad, verse 12, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in the land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Now you may be wondering, why send judgment? After David repented. That one rocked me two weeks ago when I was studying this passage. 
why send judgment after David repented? Isn't this a little harsh? Isn't this a bit of an overreaction? Why is God so cranky? Is this a divine temper tantrum? Friend, just because your sin is forgiven doesn't mean there aren't consequences. If you push someone off of a skyscraper and then suddenly your conscience strikes you, they're still hitting the pavement. God is displaying his judgment here, his wrath, his discipline. David did repent, but not right away. He had 10 months to repent and didn't do it. He had a long time to stop the census. God gives David a pick-your-poison choice. You've got three options. This is like the worst genie-in-the-bottle experience ever. <laughs> Choose one. How about none? No, one. The three horrifying options of punishment are three years of famine, three months subject to enemies, or three days of pestilence. They're given to us in descending order. The decreasing periods of time equate to the increasing periods of horror. The shortening of the duration corresponds with the intensification of the content. Here's what we need to know from this. Sin has consequences. You will never be presented with three options like this. This was a unique event not reproduced in God's unfolding history. But the core is the same. Sin has consequences. Ask any Christian in this building. There will be sins in our lives that we know, we know have been completely forgiven. Yet we still face the consequences. The Lord does not promise to protect you from the consequences of your sin. All over this room, we can testify of a time when God met us in the midst of our grave consequences for sin and led us through it. Verse 14, then David said to God, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. David calculated the cost of suffering by the hands of mortals and by the hands of the divine. David says, I trust the mercy of God over the mercy of the Philistines. Get this. He's confident of God's mercy in the midst of judgment. He knows who God is. He knows God will not destroy him or forget his covenant with him. This is sinners in the hands of a gracious God. Even in discipline, we cling to the mercy of God. Even in discipline, we cling to the mercy of God. God is able to show discipline and mercy simultaneously. And he does it perfectly without violating his character. It's the severity of God's judgment and the magnificence of his mercy intertwined. May God help us to trust him when we are under times of discipline. He will bring his children through. Verse 15, the discipline. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba. 70,000 men. A deadly infectious disease broke out and killed 1 in 20 of the population. It says just men died, so it decreases the numbers of the army. That's quite a dent in David's proud tally. The sin, the wrath, the mercy. Verse 17. And David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And he said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. 
This is David's second prayer. He sees the people dying, the utter devastation, and he begs, kill the shepherd, not the sheep. Punish me, not them. Let me die for the people. And God said, no. You will not die. An animal will die for the people. David is willing to be the payment, but God provides a substitute. So God tells David, I, I want you to get into a little real estate. Purchase a stone threshing floor. Um, make a land purchase, then do a sacrifice on it. God said, I want you to buy a specific plot of land in Jerusalem. The threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. The threshing floors were, were usually a certain height to catch the breeze to blow the chaff away. Throw the wheat in the air and the wind catches the light chaff and blows it down the hill. David goes to the landowner. The landowner sees the king coming and he bows deeply honoring the king. David gives him the inside scoop. Hey, we need the land for a sacrifice to stop the plague. The landowner says, take it. It's yours. You don't have to buy it. I'd be honored if God wanted to use my land for something like this. In fact, take this wood, these oxen, and, and this fire starter. I mean, what a bargain. If I were the king, I'd say, great. Verse 24. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. This is not land seized by the king's power, but bought by the king's riches. He paid fair market value. The king is eager to fulfill his obligations. No shortcuts, no attempts at saving costs. Arnold said, Arnold, the uh, commentator, not the Schwarzenegger. Uh, Arnold said, and I quote, if David doesn't sacrifice some of his personal wealth to honor Yahweh, his worship will be cheap and his service meaningless. End quote. By the way, does your service to God cost you? Give him the cream of your life, not the dregs, the first fruits, not the leftovers. Prioritize your time. Prioritize your money. Let it cost you to worship this king. Verse 25. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. The book ends with a picture of a king over sacrifices. And a sacrifice turned away the judgment. We have this concluding verse, a bit out of chronological order, but it's the order in which the events took place. Verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Picture dark clouds representing the judgment of God running along the sky. But just before they reach Jerusalem, they stop. David sees an avenging angel with his brandished sword ready to, to destroy the city of God, the people of the Lord. His sword is brandished and then God stops the angel. This is the exact same location where 1,000 years earlier, Abraham brandished his sword about to plunge it into Isaac when God stopped him and told him to offer a lamb caught in the thicket instead. With Abraham, God intervened and provided a sacrifice. So here with the angel, God again intervenes and provides a sacrifice for a substitute. In both cases, God averted the judgment. 
saving Isaac then, saving Jerusalem now. These two events happened on the same ground. The threshing floor of Arana. This will be the place where Solomon, David's son, will build a temple and Israel will offer lambs for their sin. One final connection. One final connection. 1,000 years later, we know what happened 1,000 years before at that same location. 1,000 years later, there's another brandished sword about to plunge into Christ and God the Father does not stop it. Three times in the scriptures, there's a brandished sword. God spared Isaac, God spared Jerusalem, but he would not spare his son. All this points forward to another hill, and some scholars think it's the same hill where the ultimate Lamb of God was sacrificed for our sins. Jesus is the ram to which Isaac pointed, the lamb to which these sacrifices pointed. All those times before, the Lord's anger was appeased, not satisfied. But on Calvary, it was satisfied. David was a king who had others die because of his sin. Jesus was a king who died because of the sin of others. David was a shepherd willing to suffer for his sheep. Jesus was a shepherd who actually suffered for his sheep. The good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. One was a shepherd who brought sin on his people. Another was a shepherd who took away sin from his people. On this hill, this story, on this hill, God said, it is enough. On Calvary's hill, God never said it is enough. He poured out all his wrath on Jesus Christ. Father, this wasn't the only time someone ordered a census. You revealed to us that Caesar Augustus desired to show the world how mighty he was by counting everyone in his kingdom. Caesar, Augustus, and David want to number the people. But you sent Jesus not to number the people, but to be numbered among them. Praise your holy name. You brought salvation to us. Amen.